I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 2nd, 2012. Coming up, BBC's Science in Action explores a new study showing that our Neanderthal ancestors were, well, not so dumb after all. The secret lies in dark bird feathers. And marine biologist Jim McClintock will discuss his new book, Lost Antarctica. It highlights his adventures and research into the fragile continent at the bottom of the world. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Giraffes have the longest necks of any animal alive today, topping out at about eight feet. In fact, that's near the upper limit for any known mammal or bird species, living or extinct. But it's not nearly as long as the necks of the sauropod dinosaurs. That group includes such towering plant eaters as Apatosaurus and Brachiosaurus. The largest species, Supersaurus, had a neck about 45 feet long. Now, long necks have some obvious advantages, like letting an animal reach food way up in the treetops. So why haven't any other creatures, like, say, giraffes, ever evolved a neck longer than a couple of meters? And how were sauropods able to reach such lofty neck-length heights? Well, a couple of paleontologists got to wondering about that over beers one night, and after much sober research, they came up with several factors that made sauropod dinosaurs uniquely suited for evolving incredibly long necks. A lot of it has to do with engineering. For one thing, a long, massive neck needs a large, stable body to support it without tipping over. And the head at the end of that neck can't be too big either. Makes sense. But one surprising issue with a long neck is how do you breathe through it? If you've ever gone snorkeling, you know that it's more work to breathe through that little tube. Now imagine if the snorkel were as tall as a four-story building. But sauropods, like all dinosaurs, had highly efficient respiratory systems, similar to those of today's birds, that could pull air down, down, down into the lungs. Of course, since this is a paleontology study, there's also a lot of stuff about bone densities and muscle attachment points, as well as some great images that show just how impressive sauropod necks really were. The research paper on sauropods was published last week in the free online journal Archive. That's A-R-X-I-V dot O-R-G. Science, as we've just learned, is full of discovery and mystery. But some of the mystery has a darker side. It's called scientific misconduct. In the last decade, the number of retractions of scientific papers and journals rose tenfold to more than 300. That's according to an article in the journal Nature a year ago. But other studies have suggested that most retractions are the result of honest mistakes. And yet a new study just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, probes more deeply into the retractions and concludes that the pattern of behavior hasn't been so honest after all. Authors of the study, Dr. Arturo Casadeval from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx and Dr. Farrakh Fang from the University of Washington, with help of a medical communications consultant, analyzed more than 2,000 retracted papers in the biomedical and life sciences. They found that three-quarters of the retractions for which they could determine the cause, were due to some form of misconduct, including fraud. The authors suggest that the scientific misconduct appears to have played a more prominent role in retractions in the biomedical literature than previously thought. They argue that what's driving the increasing number of retractions are perverse incentives that spur scientists to purposely publish false data, or at least make sloppy mistakes. This report was adapted from an article in the New York Times and directly from PNAS study. Last April, in the middle of the Indo-Australian Oceanic Plate, south of India and west of Sumatra, two huge earthquakes sent waves rolling over the surface of the Earth. 
The first, a magnitude 8.7 tumbler, was possibly the largest of its kind ever recorded. It wasn't caused by the sort of plate tectonics that are usually responsible for earthquakes, where an oceanic pl plate thrusts under a lighter continental plate. Rather, it was caused by sections of crust shearing left and right past each other, smack in the middle of the plate. And slide they did as much as 30 meters, a third of a football field, in places. The second great quake broke nearby a couple of hours later. Three studies of those earthquakes were published online last week by the journal Nature. One on the plate motions and stresses, another on the complex nature of the faults, and a third looking at other, smaller earthquakes that were triggered around the world in the days following the two biggies. The researchers studied the quake's energy release using complex models of the Earth and seismic waves recorded across the world. They discovered that the Indo-Australian plate was fractured on four great faults, not lined up with each other, but splaying in multiple directions. To the north, the Indo-Australian plate is smacking against the mighty Eurasian continental plate, forcing the Himalayas skyward as a result. It's a tough push. But at the southern end, the Indo-Australian plate is sliding more freely under the Eurasian plate, slipping under Sumatra. One end held firmly, the other moving, and the result is that the middle is getting squeezed, and that pent-up energy may be tearing the Indo-Australian plate apart. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Ted Burnham. Our Neanderthal ancestors have long been maligned as rather dim-witted cave dwellers, but they may have been brighter and more colorful, more like us, shall we say. We turn to the BBC's Science in Action for a new look at research into who these ancestors really were. Here's BBC's John Stewart. Now, our evolutionary cousins, the Neanderthals, used bird feathers as decoration, according to a new study. It adds to the idea that Neanderthals weren't the grunting, brutish cavemen that we traditionally picture them as, but may have had some behavioural, ritualistic and even cognitive abilities in common with our own early ancestors. The BBC's Paul Rincon's been to find out more about some unusual remains which could shed light on ancient cultural activities. Paul, first of all, tell us what the researchers were actually looking at. The researchers from Gibraltar and a few other countries wanted to see whether bird remains were linked to sites that also had human occupation. And that's exactly what they found. They found that there were more bird remains in sites that were occupied by Neanderthals, our distant evolutionary cousins. And then they looked more closely at sites in Gibraltar. These are caves in the Rock of Gibraltar where they know Neanderthals lived. And uh, curiously, from about 50,000 to 28,000 years ago, the remains of birds were quite common in these caves, and these weren't just any birds. There were birds of prey, raptors like eagles and vultures, as well as corvids, crows, rooks and magpies. And Clive Finlayson, the director of the Gibraltar Museum, who's one of the co-authors on the paper, told me what they found. We were struck by the presence of particular kinds of birds, especially birds of prey, over and over again, and we wondered what that meant. And when we did the comparison across the whole of Eurasia, certain species came across as overrepresented, and we thought, well, what does that mean? Interestingly, the site that had the most of these overrepresented raptors happened to be Gorham's and Vanguard Caves, and what we found was evidence that Neanderthals were cutting these bones, and we realized that a lot of it was wing bones that hold the, the feathers, the primary feathers. 
And what all this suggests to us is that, that the feathers were probably being used for ornamental purposes, and this is quite an unbelievable thing to find. Paul, what gives them confidence that they were being used ornamentally? Surely the first assumption would just be that these animals were being caught to be eaten. Yeah, it's not surprising that you might think that. And a lot of people have thought that Neanderthals didn't embrace culture and ornamentation like our early modern human relatives who replaced the Neanderthals. But it's a disproportionate number of certain types of birds that were found. Interestingly, they all have dark or black feathers. And all this points to them being chosen for some specific purpose. There's very little meat there. There's hardly no meat at all. There's just tendon. There's no point in going through that process other than to get the feathers. It's showing that Neanderthals simply express themselves in media other than cave walls. This does show some sort of abilities that people have perhaps not credited Neanderthals with before. Could they just have been copying our early human ancestors who we did know used feathers in sort of more ornamental ways? Well, there's been this argument before, and certainly the Neanderthals and modern humans overlapped in Europe for some significant period of time. But in this case, they've got birds from sites that are around 50,000 years old, and that's well before that exchange period where modern humans entered Europe and may have come into contact with Neanderthals. So do the scientists have any idea what Neanderthals would actually have done with these feathers? So that they wanted them because they, they looked good, they were ornamental, but did they have any kind of deeper significance to them? Well, we know they had a preference for black feathers or dark feathers, and we know that they were taking the large ones from the wings. I spoke with Juan José Negro, who's director of the Doniana Biological Station in Seville. He's a behavioural ecologist who studies ornaments and signals in animals. They were using the feathers, long feathers, because we are talking about pretty big birds. Current uses of feathers typically involve the same species. I mean, if we think of the plain Indians in North America, they put those feathers most of the time in headdresses, and their signaling power, perhaps, uh, Neanderthals used the feathers in the same way. It's perhaps not surprising, but in the past, the Neanderthals have been painted as rather primitive people compared to us. People thought that they went extinct because perhaps they weren't as creative or intelligent as modern humans. So now we're building a completely different picture of them, rehabilitating them in some way. And uh, this all feeds into that picture of art and symbolic thinking, that we've now got some tentative evidence that survived in the archaeological record for Neanderthals. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. For Coloradans who whine on the rare days when the sun doesn't shine, it may be hard to imagine living without sunlight for half the year, I'm talking about the bottom of the world. That's Antarctica. It's at once unforgiving and stunning. It also may be hard for landlocked human inhabitants to grasp that our daily lifestyles, burning fossil fuels every time we turn on the lights or drive our car, for instance, affects the delicate marine ecosystems of the Southern Ocean, and in turn, the health of the plants and animals, and indeed the ice they depend on in Antarctica, affects our own health. To talk about life way down under... And why we should care that its future is in jeopardy, we have on the phone Dr. Jim McClintock. He's a marine biologist at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. He wrote a new book called Lost Antarctica, Adventures in a Disappearing Land. In December 2010, I met Dr. McClintock at Palmer Station, a small U.S. research base at the tip of a tiny island off the western Antarctic Peninsula. I was there in a, as a journalist to learn and write about how scientists like Jim conduct research in such an unforgiving but stunning environment. 
I also reported live for How on Earth there from the station. So, Jim, nice to connect with you again up in the Northern Hemisphere, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. So maybe before we talk about, as your title suggests, what's lost or what's at least disappearing about Antarctica, tell us first about um, what you first found and what enchanted you. You've been going back and forth there for a couple decades at least, right? Yep. I took my first trip to Antarctica in 1982, and I've had uh, 14 research expeditions over the last uh, 30 years. And I was just enticed from the from the get-go. Uh, as a young graduate student, I had the opportunity to dive below the waters and see these amazingly rich marine communities. And the rest is history. I was just hooked. <laughs> and you've done a lot of different kinds of research down there, but one is on this tiny sea butterfly, the amphipod. Tell us about that. Oh, that was a wonderful uh, discovery I made at McMurdo Station over on the Ross Sea with a colleague, John Jansen. Essentially, uh, what we found is a little sea butterfly. It's a mollusk that has lost its shell over evolutionary time. It does not fly, I take it? Well, it doesn't fly, no, but it flies underwater, essentially. It flaps its wings very quickly. And uh, they were chemically defended, which wasn't too much of a surprise because they had no shell to hide within. But what was the surprise was a little amphipod, as you mentioned, a small crustacean that swims up, grabs a sea butterfly, and swims around carrying it on its back, just like a backpack. And that provided protection from fish. If you took them off the backs of the amphipods, the fish would consume them. So it was the first example that we knew of of a species that captures and carries another species around for its own protection. Hmm. Sounds like one of these um, biomimicry examples where I could imagine biotech companies swarming to figure out the secret of that and synthesize it. (laughs) Exactly. And then, so there's the amphipod, there's all kind of life. I mean, we hear a lot about the penguins and the big leopard seals and the whales, but also you talk a lot about the coral sponges, the sea worms, the red seaweed, a little bit more about the the tinier critters. Yeah, people people don't realize that uh, Antarctica has one of the richest marine systems on the planet, comparable in terms of the amount of life to the Great Barrier Reefs of Australia. You know, I'll never forget the first time I dove under the ice and looked down on the bottom and just saw these carpets of sponges and soft corals and starfish and sea urchins and And it's a very ancient system. Um, It's existed for 30 million years since the Antarctic Circumpolar current was set up. So there's been a lot of time for evolution to occur. And as a chemical ecologist, as part of my goal, a lot of interesting chemistry in these organisms as well has evolved. And then give us a lay of the land in terms of primarily the U.S. research stations, but obviously there are a bunch of other ones. Some may imagine this as just this big, massive ice block. Yes. I mean, you have to remember Antarctica is the size of India and China combined. It's it's a massive continent. The U.S. has three stations, uh, the South Pole Station, McMurdo, which is what I like to call the Los Angeles of Antarctica, about a thousand people during the summer. And then where I've been working over the last uh, 12 years and that you visited, Palmer Station, a small station, um, very nicely positioned right in front of a glacier, Mar Glacier, with 44 people, about half science and half support staff. There are a number of different countries that now maintain stations in Antarctica, um, well over 30 or 40 countries. They uh, do so to varying extents. Um, In order to belong and be a signatory to the Antarctic Treaty, you must have an operational station. Uh, Some uh, countries uh, are quite serious about their work in Antarctica. Others more just have a political presence. And sounds like a research utopia. Does everyone actually get along so well and share data to some degree? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been marvelous. The, the, my encounters with other you know, scientists from other countries in Antarctica have been nothing but stellar. There's a certain camaraderie that exists between scientists working on the ice, as we call it, and it's always a great celebration when, when different countries visit each other's stations. And there's a lot of collaboration uh, in the science itself now, where we work together on common issues uh, across countries. And I know some of that research that you and others have been doing has been going on for decades as part of these long-term ecological research projects, right? That's correct. And, you know, I would say that with climate change, uh, as dramatic as its impacts are in Antarctica now, this has really been a fostering of different countries coming together as well to work on this common issue. Boy, so give us a snapshot of, you know, what are some of the early or maybe at this point not so early signals of what's happening down there in terms of climate change as well as related to that ocean acidification? You mentioned yeah, the Mar um, Glacier right, mm-hmm. that tucked right behind them. Um, Palmer Station. I mean, that's been receding pretty dramatically for starters, right? Oh, it's amazing. Um, you know, the Western Antarctic Peninsula, this piece of land that extends up from Antarctica below South America, it's about a thousand miles long. I believe it's the most rapidly warming region of the planet. Um, it's recorded that it's increasing about. Uh, it has increased about 10 degrees Fahrenheit in the last 60 years in terms of midwinter air temperatures, and you can see it. Um, I mean, the Mar Glacier used to occasionally. Uh, drop off a big chunk and calve next to the station maybe once or twice a week when I was down there 10, 12 years ago. And now, you know, you don't even get up and run down and look out the window when you hear the crashes anymore. It's just going uh, crazy. 87% of the glaciers up and down the peninsula now are in recession. Um, major ice sheets have been breaking off the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, the Wilkins, the Larsen B, um, you know, you'll pick up your newspaper and read about them. And these are the sizes of of places like Rhode Island, uh, et cetera. I mean, these are, are very dramatic events. Well, and you talked about the, the midwinter temperature, the 10 degrees Fahrenheit over 60 years. How does that compare with, say, the Arctic? Because that's also I a think, pretty dramatic yeah. change. Absolutely. The Arctic is also, as you well know, as everybody well knows, one of the most rapidly warming regions as well. I think it puts it slightly ahead of the Arctic. Now, we haven't seen, you know, we've seen some pretty dramatic recession in the annual sea ice along the western Antarctic Peninsula. But but as you've seen this year in the Arctic, I mean, the Arctic ice cap is just melting like crazy. Um, so I would put it right up there with the Arctic, maybe a little bit ahead for the Antarctic Peninsula. Now, when you begin to look at the continent, the western side of Antarctica is just beginning to warm. There's evidence now of glaciers thinning along the western side of the continent. But the eastern side of the continent so far has not warmed. Uh-huh. Um, and so many different forms of life down there that are being affected in different ways. Some, at least short term, seem like for the better, in fact. Can you talk a little bit about, well, let's start with the different kinds of penguins and what's happening to them as the ice yeah, um, well, temperatures rise? Yeah, what's happening uh, that concerns me personally about the penguins is, is the Adelie, which is was so common 35 years ago. Those are those ones nation. that look like they're wearing tuxedos, right? Charlie Chaplin, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, Bill Fraser, who's worked on these for many, many years, um, has seen an 80% decline in the Adelie populations in front of the station. They've gone way down. Um, at the same time, while the Adelie's been disappearing, uh, species that are warmer uh, penguins that are found in warmer regions are moving in. Um, and those are what? The chins, those, yeah, yeah, the chinstrap and the gentoo. And the gentoos kind of look like they're wearing the apple iPods? 
Yes, they got the little, <laughs> little caps. tendrils yes. from there. And the chin straps have the little strap under their neck. And, uh, and they are moving in because it's getting warmer, and uh, they're not as tied to the uh, annual sea ice in their ecology as the Adeli. And as that sea ice is receding, it's receded now about 40% over the last 30 years. 40%? Wow. 40%. The Adelis are, are having a tough time. They use the ice as a platform to get offshore to their rich feeding grounds. Uh, they feed on the krill that's underneath the annual sea ice when they're teenagers grazing on the little diatoms. Um, and also these unseasonably late snowstorms that are coming along as the air is warming and becoming more humid are really causing havoc with the Adelis who get buried in the snow after they've laid their eggs and the eggs eventually drown in the snow melt. So it's really a sad story with the Adeli. I would say the Adeli is sort of the iconic uh, climate change uh, megafauna, much like the polar bear uh, would be thought of in the Arctic. Yeah, and now bring us back to um, the landlocked state that we're in and sort of make the connection. I know a lot of people, I think Colorado is the, has the second highest number of scuba divers you know, in the ocean, so clearly this is an ocean-loving state. But just to make the connection between, as I alluded to in the intro, what, why people should care. What is the connection ecologically and otherwise? Yeah, I would say, you know, that between the greenhouse gases uh, that are produced, the food uh, that we're eating, the way we grow our crops and our livestock, all of these things are impacting these fragile ecosystems of Antarctica. You're getting warming uh, as a result of these activities, and as the, as the seas are warming, organisms in Antarctica are not necessarily set up to deal with these warming temperatures. They've lived at very constant low temperatures for millions of years. We could lose species of marine invertebrates that uh, might have the cure to cancer or other human diseases, uh, things that we've actually discovered in our research that so, show promise. Some of it losing what we don't even know yet. Yep, and in some cases, we, we actually do know um, that these things have compounds that are active against melanoma and different types of cancers. And then the other thing that you mentioned earlier on, ocean acidification, a third of the carbon dioxide that we put into the air, whether it's coming from Colorado or, or any other state, ends up in the ocean. And that is acidifying the ocean, and Antarctic species are particularly vulnerable. They have very, very thin, fragile shells that are vulnerable to ocean acidification. I think Antarctic organisms in the ocean may be sort of the, the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to impacts of ocean acidification. And this is an area that uh, my research team is actually doing some work now at Pomeron. Right, and then folks can uh, Google Palmer Station to get a little more information on a lot of the different work there. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that was Dr. Jim McClintock, a marine biologist at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, talking about his new book, Lost Antarctica, Adventures in a Disappearing Land. It's on sale now. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and was engineered by Joel Edelstein. Jim Pullen is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional headline contributions from Jim Pullen and additional music from The Brave and Rachel Yamagata. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. Thank you.